Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we're continuing our series, Jesus and His People. So turning your Bibles to John chapter 17, verses 6 to 10, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Jesus is Glorified in His People. Arguably the most inspiring speech that has ever been given in the United States was the Gettysburg Address. You know, that speech was given by then President Abraham Lincoln at the dedication of the Soldiers National Cemetery in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. The speech was delivered some four and a half months after the end of the American Civil War. And you might remember that the American Civil War was so horrific that it resulted in the loss of some 600,000 lives. The nation was still reeling from the pathos of it all and clearly needed some place in which they could remember and mourn. President Lincoln was called upon just to give a few remarks. You know, some historians think that he was being snubbed. Indeed, on the program that day, speaking right before the president was one Edward Everett, who spoke for a full two hours. And after he was done, the president was invited to the podium to say his own few words. And Lincoln got up to the podium and he spoke for only three minutes. And after three minutes, he simply sat down. Everyone was stunned. I mean, was that it? He hardly started. And before anyone could properly settle in to hear what he had to say, he'd already gone from the podium to his chair. At first, some felt it was a very poor speech. Indeed, leading newspaper reporters said that the president had disappointed everyone. But when his words were analyzed and then written down for the newspapers for all to read, his words took on a new meaning. And to this day, many believe those words were the greatest oration in U.S. political history. No greater words were ever spoken by an American president. So put it in context, I bet you've never heard of Edward Everett. Indeed, you've never read a single word that he spoke that day. But all remember those three minutes by Abraham Lincoln, the Gettysburg Address, just three minutes. And the last thing that Jesus did in the upper room on that night when he was betrayed and arrested was to pray. It probably took Jesus just a little more than the three minutes that were taken to deliver the Gettysburg Address. So if I read through John 17, often called the high priestly prayer, that prayer may have taken some four minutes to pray. I suppose if you pray it slowly, five, maybe six minutes. But then we listen closely to what Jesus said and actually study the words. You're going to be stunned. Well, yesterday we examined the first five verses, which really are about Jesus' prayer for his glory and the glory of the Father. That's the passionate center of the prayer. He's appealing to the Father that the cross, the resurrection, the ascension into heaven, the exaltation at the right hand of the Father, I mean, all of that might both glorify him and the Father. But most specifically, he's praying that the cross might showcase the greatness of the Father and the Son. And that in itself is breathtaking. And God answered that. I mean, listen to what later the Apostle Paul would say, and that's recorded in Galatians 6.14. He said, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Indeed, it's not just Paul who boasts in the cross. Every believer from the millions upon millions, from every tribe and tongue and race and nationality and language group of the world do the same. Far be it from me that I should boast in anything, save in the death of Christ for me, whereby my soul has been purchased for God, and I'm no longer my own. All over the world, the wisdom of the Father is proclaimed. Look at his wisdom, creating a world that would put a cross at its center. 
And look at the obedience of the Son submitting himself unto death, and therefore God has given him a name that's above every name. See, this prayer, Father, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Well, that has been and is still being answered. The Father listened to the Son and said, yes, I will answer that prayer. Now we come to the second section of this prayer in which Jesus will extend this prayer for his glory to his people. So let's read today's text, John 17, verses 6 to 10. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So let's start with that little phrase in verse 6. It's the phrase, the people you gave me out of the world. See, in order to understand that phrase, we need to go back to John 3, verse 19. It said, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. See, Jesus and John's description of him shows a world overcome with sin, darkness, and awaiting judgment. As awful as that condition is, John adds, men loved the darkness. They didn't want light to expose them. And so on the basis of that description, you might think that Jesus coming into the world would not be welcome at all. I mean, men, and by men, of course, we mean humanity, they would find God's great plan to send his son into the world to be an unwelcome intrusion. You know, in a real way, the cross not only highlights the glory of God, it also highlights the human love for darkness. Should God enter into the world and offer to deliver us from sin, we would turn in wrath and kill him. We want darkness. Let's get back to that phrase, those whom you gave me out of the world. See, out of a world of darkness, God the Father chose some and gave those to his Son. Go to John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. See, notice here that Jesus is making it clear that whoever comes to him has been given by the Father. Now on to John 6, 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And then on to John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up at the last day. So throughout the book of John, we've seen a formula. Men love darkness. They won't come into the light. However, the Father has chosen to give some to the Son. As it were, the Father takes some of the darkened human race, claims them as his own. And then the Father approaches the Son and says, Take these and guard and protect them so they don't fall away. And then the Son makes a promise to the Father. He says, I promise you, I'll not lose a single one of them. Indeed, on the last day, and this is when Jesus returns to judge the world, he's going to raise them up, all those the Father has entrusted to him, and present them to the Father. He will say, here's the full number, Father. Count them. Not one has been lost. Now then, that's been the drama that John has been describing. So let's get back to the prayer in John 17, verse 6. To those people, Jesus says, whom you gave me out of the world, to them... I manifested your name. Now, from the outset, don't let the word manifested throw you for a loop. 
It simply means to reveal or to cause something that's not been seen in the past to now become visible. So if you go to a stage production, well, that refers to the rising of the curtain. What Jesus did for the disciples is to raise the curtain for them. And once he did, they were able to see the Father. In other words, Jesus is the one who described the Father to the disciples. Okay, that's the easy part of verse 6. Now, look at the disciples that the Father has given Jesus. Do you remember how it is that Jesus chose the twelve, how they became his apostles? You know, Luke describes that in Luke 6, 12 to 13. He says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. So, in other words, it was in his prayer time that the Father specifically revealed to the Son which were the ones who were to be chosen as apostles. And Jesus is praying. And remember, the apostles are listening. And he's saying, as it were, Father, I never chose these. Indeed, it was during my prayer time that you specifically gave me every single name that is among the men who are in this room. I went to them and I called them because you had already shown me that yours they were. You will see that he uses that very line in verse 6. And now notice the last line in verse 6. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, of course, Jesus isn't saying that his disciples were sinless or perfect or without confusion or had insight into everything. We've noticed how often they were confused. But we are reminded here of an incident in John 6 where, because Jesus was teaching hard things, many of those who had begun to follow him started to grumble, and they left him and no longer followed him. And then Jesus turns to the twelve and he says, Do you want to go too? And remember what Peter answered. He says, Where else should we go? You have the words of eternal life. When others were leaving, these did not. They kept your word. Ricardo wrote, Thank you and all the men and women of Back to the Bible Canada for the great work you do. You continue to inspire my spiritual growth, and I'm grateful God has given me the opportunity to contribute. All praise and glory to God. Ricardo, thank you. Friends like you make this Bible teaching ministry possible. Has your life been impacted by the Word of God and perhaps the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada? Well, with your financial contribution, or by becoming a monthly partner through our 1119 Fellowship, we can continue to make Bible teaching you can trust accessible to our nation. If you'd like to be part of the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, laugh again or in doubt, just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. we've seen up till now surely should help us consider the relationship between Jesus and his people. See, at a time when so many are falling away, at a time when it sometimes becomes genuinely difficult to keep following Jesus, how can we be assured that we won't fall away? But these words that Jesus prayed should be of great comfort, shouldn't they? I've revealed you to my disciples. You gave them to me, Father, and that's the reason that they've kept keeping your word. Now, I know what doubts might creep into your mind. I mean, for one, we might say, well, what about Judas? 
well, you're going to have to wait because tomorrow we're going to address that directly. But we might also wonder about others who've fallen away. Weren't they already given by the Father? Well, let's look at John 6, 39, which we've already read. Jesus said there that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. So that's Jesus' promise to his Father. Whenever the Father gives me someone, I'm faithful to my Father. I never lose them. After all, he entrusted them to me, and he's depending on me to be faithful to his charge. So if you think about it, John 17, verse 6 is an amazing part of the prayer. The way that Jesus keeps those the Father has given him is that he reveals the Father's name, that is, his nature, his attributes, his mercy, the fact the Father stands ready to bless them and to answer their prayers. That's what Jesus has been doing to his followers. He's been revealing the Father. Okay, let's go to verse 7. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. Now, at this point, we might argue that the 11 who are left don't yet know all things. I mean, they still struggle to understand that Jesus must die and rise again. They might not even understand what Jesus meant by the kingdom of God or how in the present moment the time of blessing had come, but that for the moment God had decided not to bring judgment on the wicked. They might not have understood the nature of the church that he had called upon them to build. There's so many things they didn't know, but there's something they do know. They know that everything that the Father gave the Son is from the Father. Now, that at least in our way of thinking, you know, it seems a strange way of putting it. What he means to say is this, my words that I spoke, they know that those words came from you. And so, in this sense, they know without a doubt that I am God's messenger and that everything I say can be trusted. They may still have gaps in their understanding, but they know that when I speak, They hang on those words. Those words are true. So stop and make application. I think that's also true for every believer. We know that the words of Jesus are true. We know that the Bible is true. You know, there are still so many areas in which we might be in confusion, but we know where bedrock is to be found. We know that our culture might change, our health may fail, our friends might desert us, our finances might dissolve, and in all this, we might become confused. I mean, how is God in this? But in the end of the day, when we open the Bible, we know bedrock is there. Here is a ground upon which I stand. I may not know many things, but this I know. God has spoken in the person of his son, Jesus, and he is the way, the truth, and the life. So we continue to verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. You know, the Greek word for words, that is, the words that I have given you, that's not the word logos, it's the word remata. You know, I point this out because what Jesus is saying is that it's not that they accepted the whole of his teaching or the whole of his doctrine, but rather they accepted every individual words, that is, the actual words, the actual utterances themselves. It's so important. See, I remember years ago listening to a secular radio broadcast, and the host of the program was making the point that he, he said, was a follower of Jesus. However, he said, there were matters on which he actually disagreed with Jesus, And then he proceeded to point out Jesus' teaching on sexuality, where he said he simply couldn't go that far. He went on to explain that you could really be passionate about Jesus as the greatest teacher who had ever lived, but that didn't mean that you had to throw out your brains and come to your own conclusions about these issues. 
In Jesus' own words, such a one had never been given to him by the Father. Those that the Father has given him weren't just enamored with his teaching. They were enamored with every word. They believed that not one single word was a throwaway line. It's that way for all true believers. I mean, that's the reason we study Scripture line by line, verse by verse, word by word. It's because every word falls from the mouth of God. When Christians say they believe in biblical inerrancy, that's what they mean. Every word proceeds from the mouth of God. Not one word is to be discounted. I may struggle to understand it, but I know it's true. Notice Jesus says that the disciples received those words. Other translations say they accepted them. That is, once they were given, they agreed, yes, we accept it. Now to verses 9 and 10. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. See, it's very important never to think of that Jesus' prayer in John 17 was a prayer for the whole world. It just wasn't. Indeed, right here, Jesus re-emphasizes that his unique prayer for us is his prayer for those the Father has given him or who are often called the elect, those elected by the Father to be given over to the Son. See, that's only part of the equation here. Notice the other half. I'm praying for them. That is, I'm interceding for them. My concern is never taken from them. I already made mention of this before, but let's stop and consider what the, the writer of Hebrews has to say such a precious promise. Once we take it in, it should stun us. See, Hebrews is speaking about the role of the First Testament priests. See, a part of their role was to intercede before God on behalf of the people. So notice Hebrews 7, 23 to 25. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So slow that down. What does it mean when it says Jesus is able to save to the uttermost? It means that he's able to save in the most complete extent possible. A complete salvation means an eternal salvation. Nothing's lacking. Now then, Jesus is able to save his people completely, lacking nothing. And why is he able to do this? The answer, because he always lives to make intercession for them. He never stops praying for them. Now, here's a word about prayer. As we all know, some of our prayers are not answered. And why is that? Well, there might still be sin in our lives, or we might not have a pure heart, or we might not know how to pray fully in the will of God. Now, do you think that any of that describes Jesus? Well, absolutely not. All of his prayers are answered in the affirmative. And if Jesus is praying for you, you, the one the Father gave to Jesus, then know this, that all Jesus' prayers are answered in the affirmative. See, I can't even begin to imagine the prayers that Jesus has made on my behalf before the Father. Hebrews says he never stops doing it. It's a wonderful truth. When I'm facing my most difficult moments, I imagine Jesus beseeching the Father on behalf of his child, John. Now, back in John 17, notice now the prayer of verse 10. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. You know, yesterday we spent a good bit of time speaking about how the Father glorifies the Son and how the Son glorified the Father. Indeed, I can't think of much more to say on that matter other than the honor due both the Father and the Son are insured by both the Father and the Son. 
they give glory to each other. Now, how do we add anything to that? And yet Jesus says that he is glorified in his disciples. That is, the life of the believer promotes the worthiness of Jesus. I mean, think of it by considering the opposite. In Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul speaks of those who claim to obey the law of God but actually don't. They're, they're hypocrites. And then in chapter 2, verse 24, he says, For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That is, hypocritical believers cause the unbelieving world to mock, to blaspheme, and to curse the name of God. We all know that's true. Now consider the opposite. As Jesus takes those the Father has given him, as he invests in us, as he teaches us his word, and as he, the righteous one, prays for us, what's the outcome of that? Well, the outcome is that God is glorified. Men and women who know nothing of God look at the lives of those who have been redeemed by Christ and they speak of our God with honor and respect because of the righteous lives of those who love Christ. And as for those of us who listen in on Christ's prayer, aren't you overwhelmed by that? Your Savior is praying that he be glorified in you. God's going to answer in the affirmative. Thanks so much, John. You know, I got to ask you this. Is it possible we spend far too much time focusing on areas of our failing rather than ensuring we're spending enough time giving thanks when we do things that bring God glory? Yeah, I know that um, it is important for us to take note of our sin. I, I don't want to get away from that. I think, you know, a regular daily habit, practice of confessing our sins before the Lord makes us aware of grace and the need for mercy. So I, I don't want to say anything that should take away from that. But I do want to say that the Holy Spirit has been given to us. And whereas before it was impossible for us to glorify God, now for the first time it does become possible. And as we are learning to grow in holiness, in obedience to Christ, and leaning hard on the power that the Holy Spirit gives us, we're going to be finding out that in those areas where we'd always failed before, for the first time there's a glimmer of change. We're finding out that we're succeeding and we're learning to resist temptation. And we need to know that all of this is glorifying to God. So I think the overall trajectory of our life should be a pattern of hopefulness. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus and His People, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. Hi, this is Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. The year is coming to a close and I couldn't be more grateful for the encouragement, prayers, and support we received from so many gracious ministry friends across the country. All of Back to the Bible Canada ministries, including Laugh Again and our young adult ministry in doubt, rely on the generosity of people like you. We teach the Bible with a purpose, that those who hear might receive and believe in our Lord Jesus. That's the intention of every program, every word. And your gifts make all that we do possible. Please consider supporting the ongoing ministries of Back to the Bible Canada as we strive to reach our December year-end goal of $376,000. Call 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.com. 
www.ghostbusters.ca